Welcome to the Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast. I'm Karen Wright Marsh. Do you wonder if Christian faith can be truly lived in today's complex and changing world? I'm here to tell you the stories of Saints of Charlottesville, very human people who lived faithfully in their small Virginia city. I'm glad you're here with us. the outset that I use the word saint generously, and I hope any Catholic and Orthodox friends will indulge me. Growing up as the Presbyterian preacher's daughter who married a Southern Baptist preacher's son, I'm coming late to the saints. Well, what's a saint anyway? Theologian Rowan Williams says this, saints are those who have given evidence, who have made God believable by how they lived and how they died. The saints are the people who recognize that arguments will finally not win the day. God does not make himself credible by argument. God does not respond to our doubts, our intellectual querying, our uncertainty, by delivering from heaven a neatly annotated list of logical propositions with which we cannot disagree. God deals with us by a life and a death, by Jesus. And God continues to deal with us by lives and deaths that make him credible, that make Jesus tangible here and now. So here are three stories about people who made God credible by how they lived and how they died in Charlottesville, each in their own way. The story of people living on this land goes back more than 10,000 years. A Monacan village grew up here on the banks of the Ravana River. A well-worn Monacan hunting path was used by European settlers as a trade route to shuttle goods between Richmond and the Appalachian Mountains. The settlers called it Three-Notched Road. Today, we trace that path traversed by Monacans so long ago. When we walk the downtown mall or head out of town on Route 250. The city of Charlottesville, named for Queen Charlotte, the wife of King George III, was chartered in 1762. And one never gets far in the story of Charlottesville without an appearance from Thomas Jefferson. Born in 1743, Jefferson inherited his mountaintop land, some 5,000 acres, from his father at the age of 26, and he used the labor of enslaved Africans to build and cultivate Monticello. As we all know, he went on to found the University of Virginia, with its academical village comprised of the rotunda and the lawn. Over the years, many have spoken of Mr. Jefferson with reverence, but you will not find him in my personal lineup of saints of Charlottesville. Now, there is much to debate around Jefferson's religious beliefs, but for the moment, 
Let's simply pause to give a shout out to Thomas Jefferson for promoting the Virginia Act for Establishing Religious Freedom, a law meant to comprehend within the mantle of its protection the Jew, the Gentile, the Christian, and the Mohammedan, the Hindu, and the infidel of every denomination. Jefferson was making room for saints of every kind. In a Virginia where the Anglican Church was the official religion controlled by the Bishop of London, where all taxpayers paid parish costs, and where upper-class planters controlled the vestry and chose the ministers. At the University of Virginia, there was, at Jefferson's insistence, no professor of divinity. But there was, at least, one little-known preacher of the gospel, an enslaved man named William Gibbons. Now, from 1825, when classes began, until 1865, there were always scores of enslaved laborers, as many as 140 at a time, living and working on the grounds. A young man named William Gibbons, born in Albemarle County around 1825, was brought to UVA as the servant to a young master, a student at the university. William was housed, most likely, underneath his master, in the dank cellars below the pavilions and the lawn rooms. Against all the odds, William had learned to read, and he continued his education, after a fashion, through access to his master's books. Then, William Gibbons was sold to a professor of anatomy and surgery, and hired out to Professor William McGuffey, where he worked for 20 years. As the long-standing butler to the McGuffey family in Pavilion 9, William Gibbons would become a part of the extended University of Virginia community. McGuffey's teenage daughter insisted on tutoring him in defiance of Virginia laws prohibiting the education of African Americans. Gibbons was at the center of the vibrant African-American community that existed, unnoticed by whites, in and around the academical village. Everyone who knew William Gibbons agreed that he was not only literate, but good-looking, powerfully eloquent and charismatic, and deeply religious. And he had no doubt he was called to become a preacher. He taught the Word of God, esteemed as a religious leader within the Black community surrounding Charlottesville and the Rotunda. William conceived his whole life to have been ordained by God for the purpose of ministering the gospel. Many years later, after a service in which he baptized 120 new converts, a Washington Post reporter asked after his health, and he said this, I am no worse for my two hours in the water. You see, the maker cut me out for the work, and the past 40 years have made me better able to endure it. In the early 1850s, William Gibbons married Isabella, a woman enslaved by a professor of physics who lived in a pavilion. She was described as intelligent and a handsome, capable woman who learned to read and write. Isabella and William Gibbons lived 
Like many married enslaved people of their time, in separate homes while they worked, he as a butler, she as a cook, for their slave masters on UVA's lawn. Against great odds, they had a family, three children together. After emancipation in 1863, William and Isabella Gibbons, known to so many white residents from their years at the university, grew in prominence across the newly freed African-American community of Charlottesville. Isabella was a leader in her own right, a teacher praised for her magnetism and pedagogical style. Anna Gardner, newly arrived from New England to start up a school for newly freed Black Charlottesvillians, a school that would later become the Jefferson School, where Isabella received her diploma in 1867, marveled at her skills and expertise and promoted her to full-fledged teacher. Isabella taught at the school until her death in 1889. William became minister to the congregation now known as First Baptist Church, the oldest black church in Charlottesville, after it gained independence from the First Baptist Church on Park Street. He also spent time in Washington, D.C. as the preacher of Zion Baptist Church and where he enrolled at Howard University as a divinity student. When William Gibbons died in 1886, more than 10,000 mourners attended two funerals before his burial in the black section of Charlottesville's segregated Oakwood Cemetery. For all of their resilience and their successes, William and Isabella Gibbons remind us to this day of the horrors of slavery in Charlottesville. When you visit the memorial to the enslaved laborers at the university, you read Isabella's words carved into the stone. Can we forget the crack of the whip, the cowhide, the whipping post, the auction block, the handcuffs, the spaniels, the iron collar, the Negro trader tearing the young child from its mother's breast as a whelp from the lioness? Have we forgotten these horrible cruelties, hundreds of our race killed? No, we have not, nor ever will. Meanwhile, a little white girl was born on a 1,500-acre tobacco plantation south of Charlottesville. Born in 1840, just four years younger than Isabella Gibbons, her circumstances were far, far different. She was Charlotte Lottie Moon, the third of 11 children born to Edward Moon, the largest slaveholder in Albemarle County. Lottie's uncle had purchased the estate of Thomas Jefferson, and she grew up in a home built by a friend of George Washington. The Moons boasted money, children, 52 enslaved persons, and a tutor in residence for languages and classical literature. Edward was a founding member and a lifelong deacon of the Baptist Church in Scottsville. 
For her first 18 years, Lottie was pure trouble. She violently opposed her father's Christian faith, declared that her middle initial, D, stood for devil. As a student at Virginia Female Institute and the female seminary that is now Hollins University, she despised religious instruction. She skipped chapel 26 times in two quarters. She muffled the school's bell so students would oversleep and miss chapel. Never taller than four feet, three inches, she simply didn't care what other people thought. But she was brilliant with a knack for languages. She earned a bachelor's and a master's degree, one of the first of five women in the South to complete master's level work. Lottie Moon shocked everyone, including herself, when, at the age of 18, she went to an evangelistic revival service. She went to show her disdain and then had a powerful spiritual encounter, an experience with God that turned her life upside down. Lottie tutored in Georgia, taught and founded schools in Kentucky and Georgia, and when the Civil War came, she assisted the Confederate troops where she could, true to the cause of the South, even after her conversion to Christ. After spending years as a teacher, Lottie Moon answered the call to missions, departing for Teng Chao, China in 1873, defying many objections. Feisty as ever and still four foot three, she went to China as one of the first unmarried female missionaries under a new policy within the Southern Baptists Convention Foreign Mission Board, called Women's Work for Women. Off she went to northern China to establish medical projects and found a theology school. Many tolerated or welcomed her work, but others called her a foreign devil woman. When many Chinese people declined invitations to church, Moon took another approach. She began going door to door, focusing on evangelizing women. During one 11-day trip, she visited 44 villages. Back at home, the mission board made up of men struggled to provide the support she needed, so Lottie rallied American women to organize and provide funding for missionaries. She wrote letters home, pushing comfortable Americans to consider the needs of suffering people in China. She was not subtle. She wrote, I have a firm conviction that I am immortal until my work is done. And I would I had a thousand lives that I might give them to the women of China. And the ladies back home responded, forming the Women's Missionary Union and supplying three new missionaries to China. That ongoing effort the Lottie Moon campaign goes on today and has raised more than $3.5 billion for missions. During her early days in China, Lottie Moon arrived in the elaborate dress of a 19th century lady along with her Western habits. And it must be said that Lottie went to China with many of the attitudes of racial superiority that she'd formed as the privileged white daughter of the Old South, 
as a new missionary, Lottie Moon said this, Where the Caucasian goes, he carries energy, and an inferior race is aroused by this contact. And she complained, The life here, as we Western people consider life, is exceedingly narrow and contracted. Constant contact with people of a low civilization and many disgusting habits is a trial to one of refined feelings and tastes. Can we give her credit for her passion and determination? Was Lottie Moon a saint? After 20 years laboring to learn the language, the customs, and the best ways to do evangelism, she'd seen very little result. In the reports she sent home, she describes long days of teaching, traveling, enduring poor weather and verbal abuse, uncomfortable accommodation, and nauseating food, which she said had no romantic appeal for her. Yet time, suffering, and the work of God changed Lottie in many ways as her ministry in China wore on. She left her antebellum dresses behind for more practical Chinese clothing. Her sister, who'd served as a missionary, left China and later died by suicide. Lottie's love interest came to nothing. Other fellow missionaries defected, broken down by exhaustion and depression. We hear Lottie's heartbreak in these words, I hope no missionary will be as lonely as I have been. Lottie's supporters back home failed to send adequate support, not even enough to sustain life. Yet she stayed and she wrote these words. The needs of these people press upon my soul, and I cannot be silent. It is grievous to think of these human souls going down to death without even one opportunity of hearing the name of Jesus. War, hunger, and disease ravaged China. The war with Japan, the Boxer Rebellion, and the National Uprising affected Lottie's ministry. The people she'd come to love were literally starving to death. Lottie begged and begged for money, but when the mission board failed to come through, Lottie Moon shared her own money and food with the people around her. By the end of 1912, she weighed only 50 pounds. Other missionaries tried to get her home to recuperate, but Lottie Moon, age 72, died on the way. Lottie Moon died a fighter. She was the one who said, In the army of the Lord, it is no mere idle boast to say that foreign missionaries constitute the vanguard. Theirs is the post of honor. It is they who are obeying in person the last command of their risen Lord. William Gibbons, Isabella Gibbons, and Lottie Moon were born in Albemarle County. Our last pair of saints began their lives across the ocean in a world far from the academical village. 
Dieter von Kunzberg was the city of Heidelberg's women's tennis champion and an avid skier. Born in 1915 to a law professor father and a mother with a doctorate, her life was off to a great start, complete with her own PhD in German literature. With the arrival of the Nazi regime, Dita got herself to England and Oxford University, and eventually the United States, where she taught at universities from Rhode Island to Nebraska, settling eventually at the University of Virginia. Along the way, she met and married a handsome, brilliant physicist named Herbert Yela. Herbert was another child of Germany, born in 1907 to a military general with a high reputation. Yet, for his upbringing in a wealthy, patriotic German family, Herbert, in 1936, with multiple degrees in engineering, physics, and applied mathematics, rejected positions in Germany's rearmament industry, and he declined an academic appointment in Nazi Germany. One of Herb's heroes was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, in 1933, gave up his star academic career at the University of Berlin to resist the Nazification of the Church and the evils of Hitler's Reich. Much later, Herbert would learn of Bonhoeffer's death by hanging in Flossenburg Prison in 1945, just before the Americans arrived. And so, Inspired by Bonhoeffer, Herb refused military service before Gestapo Tribunal in 1940. As a conscientious objector to the regime, he was interned in Nazi-controlled camps in Vichy, France. A woman who was at the concentration camp tells this story about Herbert. In the group of the Protestant community, I see again the silhouette of Professor Herbert Yela. He was Aryan, but an intransigent pacifist, and his being the son of a German general had not protected him. As a member of the student Christian movement, he had participated in the great ecumenical youth meeting in Amsterdam in 1939. Very tall, with ample golden beard and a sparkle in his eye, he wore in camp a blanket around his waist and another over his shoulders. In this way, he preserved his only suit for the day he hoped to leave for America. In this strange costume, he went for a walk with me one evening along the main road. Feeling very discouraged, I told him of my horror for these barracks, the odors, the suffering, about 30 or 40 people were dying daily from starvation. He said to me, do not look at the camp. Raise your eyes and contemplate the magnificent heaven and the worlds that follow into an infinity. I am an astronomer. I live in the sky. Look at that constellation. You see that planet? He began to describe to me the starry sky which twinkled above us in that extremely cold evening. Then he began to talk to me of Einstein's theories. That lesson, coming from a man who had lost everything and who found in his faith and in his science the means to carry on, 
did me incomparable good. Herbert Yela was one of the last who managed to embark for the United States, thanks to the help of friends in the World Student Christian Foundation. Herbert Yela was one of the last who managed to embark for the United States, thanks to the help of friends in the World Student Christian Federation. He became a professor of astronomy and physics at an American university. Sir Arthur Eddington, a fellow Quaker who knew Herb from his Cambridge days, was instrumental in gaining his release. Herb joined a distinguished group of refugee scholars instructing at Harvard, and he went on to teach at a number of prestigious American universities. Herbert and Dita settled together at last in Charlottesville. Herbert was teaching at George Washington University, but he wanted to protect his family from what he called the Cold War insanity of Washington. Plus, he enjoyed the train ride, spreading out his papers on the commute north, raising his sons named Dietrich and Eberhardt in Charlottesville. He and Dita loved to breathe in what they called the Jeffersonian atmosphere, walking the rolling mountains, savoring nature. If you'd met Herbert and Dita, they were very much the academic couple. He would cart briefcases too weighty for his graduate students, despite the effects of polio he had had as a child and a heart attack in 1964. To the age of 87, Dita played tennis with her grandchildren. They were active in the Quaker congregation, pursued war relief and peacework as members of the international community of the Fellowship of Reconciliation and the American Friends Service Committee. Herb was an editor of the newspaper of the Society for Social Responsibility in Science. Even here in sleepy Virginia, Dita and Herb never forgot the lessons they learned in Nazi Germany. met five saints of Charlottesville, William Gibbons and Isabella Gibbons, Lottie Moon, Dita Yela, and Herbert Yela. Across the years, through hardships and hope, each one gave evidence of God's power and presence in their small Virginia town. William, Isabella, Lottie, Herbert, and Dita leave each of us with a question. How will we make God believable in our own lives, in our own time, and our own place? I'm Karen Wright Marsh, the Executive Director of Theological Horizons, a ministry based in Charlottesville here at the University of Virginia. This special podcast episode is part of our new Saints of the City initiative, launching in Atlanta, Washington, and Northern Virginia, Charlottesville, and Dallas, with more cities to come. Saints of the City 
seeks to provide a warm environment for people from different ages, faith, and cultural backgrounds, an invitation to connect with others and consider one aspect of spiritual truth or practical wisdom as modeled by a saint from the Christian tradition. We'd love to include you. Learn more at theologicalhorizons.org slash saints. Thanks to the generosity of the Lloyd and Vivian Noble Foundation and to the Friends of Theological Horizons, the Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast is produced by Gabriel Hunter Chang. Our music is by Will Marsh of Gold Connections. Thank you.